Definitely, and sure. we have a number of like marine listeners, so you can do that as well. Like, we're okay. I think the, we employ more marines than any urbit company. <laughs> um, have more like marine, have more marine investors than any urbit company. Very semperfy compliance. We can get into that. <laughs> That's uh, fine. Okay. For, the, for the troops, <laughs> if I share it with my old yeah. infantry <laughs> officer school classmates, not a single one of them will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of The Network Age. I'm Vigil Ritson, here as usual with my co-hosts, Tim Lakmiptev and Nilrun Mardux. And today, we have an extra special guest, renowned blockchain lawyer, Stephen Galebach Esquire. Uh, Stephen, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. Uh, Doing well. Good to be with you. Awesome. Yeah. And we were really excited to have you because there's a lot going on in the the legal world with respect to blockchain and crypto because of this new DAO law uh, that is being introduced into Congress uh, in El Salvador by their president, Nayib Bukele. Um, And we just really wanted to get your your take on it and hear what's going on because it really seems like a, a big deal. Yeah, sure. Well, I was uh, very pleasantly surprised uh, Tuesday evening when I got an email from my favorite lawyer and co-counsel in San Salvador uh, sending me the text of this law, which he had just gotten and had just become public knowledge. And uh, it's uh, digital assets law for El Salvador, and it uh, sets a framework, legal framework, for basically any token uh, issuer. Uh, or related service provider. It's really quite a revolutionary and extremely well-drafted law. Yeah, that's amazing. It's it's such uh, good news to hear. And I think, you know, we're going to dive into all these specifics and really what this means for, for both El Salvador and companies around the world. But I think before we get there, we'd interested in hearing a little bit about your background, because you've both been in like traditional law and also a lot of extensive experience in um, the crypto and blockchain worlds. Sure. My career's been long enough. I've had uh, quite quite a varied experience that has led up to uh, the crypto world. Uh, I was uh, in the Reagan administration for five years. First half of that was as a legal policy advisor on White House staff. Second half was as senior special assistant to U.S. Attorney General Ed Meese. Uh, before that, uh, let's see. Well, uh, before law school, I was uh, an infantry officer in the Marine Corps, went to Harvard Law School, was in Harvard Law Review for a couple years. You know, uh, some interesting people there, a lot of fun people. Some of them are well-known now, like John Roberts, uh, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, clerked for a federal judge in the D.C. Circuit, um, and worked at the biggest law firm in D.C. as an associate, uh, Covington and Burling. After uh, the Reagan administration, I uh, have largely had my own law practice. You know, here and there I've had a partner for a bit, but mostly it's been uh, uh, my own law practice, and it's been almost all for tech companies ever since the late 80s. But what changed was five and a half years ago, I got involved for the first time in an ICO. Uh, First time uh, that happened, I had to ask a question like, what's an ICO, then what's a blockchain? (laughs) Okay, I knew what what Bitcoin was, but I had to uh, ask what uh, Ethereum was. Uh, But uh, a whole lot has happened since then. So, I mean, I can tell you what really got me into it full time. 
Yeah. Well, I'd like to know what got you into it full time. I'd also be interested in knowing, like, when we say practicing crypto law without, you know, going into the specifics of any particular clients, can you give people a sense of what that involves, like the scope of that, the types of things you might do in a typical, like, engagement? Uh, sure. I'll start out by giving you my first um, engagement five and a half years ago. Uh, it was uh, talking with a, a group of uh, four co-founders uh, who had a plan for an ICO. And I advised them that uh, their first idea of what they were going to do was would be an unregistered offering of securities. We then planned... Uh, through in detail, what would make a token not be a security? And yeah. right about the time that we had finished talking that through and they had finished uh, revising their plan and developing uh, based on the new plan, the SEC came out with their first pronouncement about um, digital assets. Uh, you might recall that was July of 2017. It was the Dow uh, case. Uh, and that's where the uh, SEC applied the Howey test. And um, I looked at that with those four co-founders and, um, and, and said, look, what you guys have been doing tracks very well with not only that uh, SEC statement, but also with the Supreme Court's uh, case law, starting with the Howey case back in 1946. And there have been, oh, about another almost 10 cases since then um, where the Supreme Court has interpreted and applied uh, the Howey test. But I'll tell you what really got me into this um, full time was that um, those co-founders asked me if they could publish a legal opinion. I did a legal opinion for them. It was 31 pages long. And I thought long and hard about whether to let somebody publish a legal opinion like that because I figured it would make me a target. But I finally decided uh, my analysis was solid. I'd stand by it. It got published. And uh, everything went smoothly, and that legal opinion turned out uh, to be, uh, 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 it, it turned out to, let, let's say, stand the test of time. And that drew a lot of uh, potential clients to me because the big law firms that had done legal opinions, you know, firms like Perkins Coie uh, and uh, Cooley, you know, based in Silicon Valley or on the West Coast, uh, had done a lot of legal opinions, never let their clients publish them. Uh, those legal opinions never did any good when their clients got knocks on the door from the SEC. Um, and uh, so really for the last almost five years, all of my law practice has been uh, uh, blockchain related. So what does that consist of? Uh, that was a good question. Uh, you asked Tim Luck. Um, it pretty much draws on, number one, all my experience representing tech companies uh, everything from commercial transactions to securities law. Uh, back in 2000, I was the IPO manager for what was then the largest internet IPO in U.S. history. That was um, uh, Genuity. And um, uh, learned a lot through that, then uh, helped manage securities law compliance for that company uh, for, for a couple years after that. Uh, but in addition... It really calls upon intellectual property, law experience, uh, uh, and, and all sorts of things that just pop up. I'd say for myself, I'm always drawing on my experience with a federal uh, law enforcement apparatus. I'm talking Justice Department, SEC, 
a lot of other regulatory agencies that I dealt with in my time in the Reagan administration that I dealt with, you know, in case law when I was clerking for a judge in the D.C. Circuit. Uh, it, it's really important to have a some sort of idea of the mindset of federal investigators and, and, and federal regulators. Because my job here is keeping my clients out of trouble, enabling them to execute a business plan in a way that minimizes risk and that is ultimately successful. Yeah, and you mentioned the Howey test. Can you maybe walk through, like, what is the Howey test and how has that sort of evolved yeah, sure. Uh, it's very interesting to look at. I'm going to talk about two versions of the Howey test. Uh, the first one is um, the Supreme Court of SEC versus Howey, uh, like I said, 1946. Uh, and the second version is going to be the way the SEC has been applying it recently. Uh, the Supreme Court's Howey test says that um, uh, a token, we're going to, I'm going to talk s uh, about tokens, uh, that it is an investment contract, which is a type of security, if it involves an investment of money or value in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit based solely, I emphasize the word solely, on the efforts of other parties, typically meaning the offeror. You know, if, if, if somebody's, you know, starting up uh, you know, a project or a company, they issue a token, and they haven't developed much of anything yet, then it's very clear that the value of that token depends on the future efforts. On the other hand, if they develop a token as a license or a participation right to use a product or service or to use a network, uh, and it has value uh, in that respect, that means that the purchases are not solely based on expectation of profit from the future efforts of others. Okay, the value is based on the past efforts. If somebody has developed, you know, a valuable technology, and now you get a token, that gives you the right to use it. Okay, so what's the SEC doing? The SEC has removed the word solely from the Howey test. So that at first it was looking like if the token was marketed primarily based on expected value from future efforts, let's say, of the issuers. If it was primarily based on that, it would be a security. But I got to tell you, in the most recent SEC-like briefs that they've filed and summary judgment victory they won um, uh, just up in New Hampshire federal court, just a little bit north of where I sit in Boston, um, it's getting to the point where the SEC is taking the position that if there's any expectation of profit based on future efforts, rather than solely based on that, just partly based, even small partly based, then it's a security. So uh, in the New Hampshire case, what happened was the SEC and the judge latched on to just a few isolated statements uh, by the founders, which encouraged, encouraged an expectation of, uh, you know, investment value and investment appreciation. Mm. Uh, so, um, yeah, yeah, that's that's the Howey test. It's it's really at this point nobody knows what the Supreme Court's going to do. By the way, the uh, judge in New Hampshire openly admitted in a footnote that the word solely had been removed from the Howey test by lower courts, and he was following them. But the Supreme Court has been asked twice, once in 1975, once about 20 years later, to remove the word solely. The SEC asked them both times; they refused to remove it. So. That's the state of play right now. 
what's what's the rationale of a judge who sees the the Supreme Court like being asked to remove it and explicitly not doing that and then deciding to go with lower courts anyway? Yeah. Okay. So it's it's largely because the Supreme Court ducked the issue rather than really stating it squarely and straightforwardly. They just said, we don't have to address that issue in this case. So that's left everybody wondering ever since, what was it, 1975 Mm -hmm. in the Foreman case, wondering, so is the Supreme Court going to remove it or are they going to keep it? And they still haven't spoken on that question. It's an enormous question right now. It affects enormous value of a major economic sector in the United States, if it goes one way, or of course, if it goes the other way, the way it's been going in the New Hampshire uh, federal court and in uh, the SEC, then that whole sector gets driven offshore. Yeah, that's all super interesting. And Stephen, I actually have um, a, a question for you about some of your past work on what constitutes a security, because we actually worked together um, a few years ago and have discussed some of these things before about how securities relate to tokens. You know, you're sort of a crypto OG. You've been there since the beginning and are helping formulate some of these ideas. And I remember that when we first worked together, a big part of the argument for why a token may not be considered a security is sort of whether it's a so-called use case token, whether or not um, it has like value in how you use a, a protocol or something. And I'm wondering if that argument is still holds up or if the SEC has basically turned and said, you know, it doesn't matter whether something has practical use. It's it's a security no matter what. Okay, so the answer to that question has shifted over time. So if, if you look at, let's say, the uh, time frame of the second half of 2017, uh, major law firms were uh, counseling their, their ICO clients that um, – a utility token or use case token would not be a security. I, I didn't, and, and actually, um, you know, I've got a friend in Boston who was at very high level of the SEC. Uh, he was also the outside counsel for that uh, uh, record-setting ICO back in 2000 when I was ICO manager. And um, he had just come back from the SEC, and he thought that a token should not be deemed a security if it would in the future have utility as a use case token, as a, for instance, a license to use a service or a product or a participation right to participate in a network. I took a more conservative position, actually, and explained to him, well, I'm trying to protect my clients, so I'm going to be more conservative. I took the position that the token had to have a um, valuable use at the time when it was issued. In other words, if you're developing a network or a service or product, uh, that the token will operate uh, as a, uh, a usage right for, then that network product or service has to be usable at the time the token's issued. And I took that, uh, that stance in my 31-page um, opinion letter. Interestingly, the head of the SEC at the time, Jay Clayton, in December of 2017, uh, gave uh, two examples of what would and would not be a security He said, if you have a token that is a participation right in a book club, that could very well be not a security. But if it's a token that's being issued based on a white paper to build a publishing house and print and distribute books 
and then operate a, a, a book club uh, with those and other books for which the token will be a participation right, then it's a security. And I actually thought at the time, actually various people came up to me and said, hey, is Clayton following like your opinion letter? Well, I don't know. I mean, Clayton and I have some good mutual friends, uh, and I'm sure he knows who I am. Uh, did he read my opinion letter? I can't, I can't uh, confirm that. We'll ask him after the show. Yeah, please do. That's the SEC position. What about like the broader U.S. Um, situation with, for example, the infrastructure bill and the CFTC ruling, the U.S. Treasury sanctioning of Tornado Cash? Can you talk a little bit about that? And then we can kind of pivot towards what's happening in El Salvador and how maybe that you know, gets us around some of this, uh, I would say, murky, but also problematic U.S. Um, environment. Okay, yeah, let, let's go through about half a dozen uh, major factors that have all added up to an intensely hostile and very risky environment in the U.S. for really all sorts of Web3 companies and certainly those that are, uh, uh, that are blockchain-based that are issuing tokens. Okay, number one, SEC today, and this finishes up my answer to your question, Mitchell, um, uh, which is SEC today is just taking the position that all tokens are securities, but they're not coming out with clear guidance saying that. Instead, they're giving zero guidance, and then they're just choosing which targets they want to hammer in enforcement actions. So it's you call it regulation by enforcement, which is the worst possible thing for business. For, for business development, you need, you need predictability, you need guidelines, you need certainty. SEC is doing the opposite. Okay. Number two is uh, infrastructure bill uh, that Nilrun mentioned. Uh, it it goes into effect next year. I think its effective date was postponed from January 1st to like the middle of the year. Okay. But uh, what it does is it says that anyone who as a business engages in or facilitates uh, cryptocurrency uh, transactions of any type must comply with the requirements for a broker. Well, the people who drafted that largely in the U.S. Treasury Department knew perfectly well it's impossible for Web3 companies in their current um, uh, structures and, and variations to comply with the broker requirements, because that means you have to submit all sorts of uh, information about your counterparty, which you know a DeFi project isn't going to have, a typical DAO isn't going to have, all sorts of um, Web3 projects are not going to have. Uh, that, that was, it was such an extreme provision that uh, almost everybody in the Senate was first introduced what um, was was ready to amend it, okay? And there was a bipartisan coalition. It had Democratic and Republican senators, conservative and liberal senators, and they all agreed on a change that would have made it at least halfway reasonable. And then, uh, but it was subject to unanimous um, consent in order to offer an amendment. And the 88-year-old former chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, I forget his last name, senator from Georgia or Alabama, I think it was Alabama, um, objected. And so the amendment couldn't be made. And the uh, outrageously broad, impossible to comply with language from the infrastructure bill became law. I, I've seen lawyers, you know, trying to, you know, make the best of it. Like, hey, it's so extreme. Obviously, they're not going to enforce it that way. From what I've seen in the past half year with this administration, you can't count on that for a moment. So what else has been going on? People probably know about Tornado Cash, first time that sanctions have ever been applied not to an individual, not to a company, 
but to a technology. How do Web3 projects make absolutely sure they never have any dealings with Tornado Cash, no contact with it? I don't know. Um, you'd have to completely reprogram, you know, all, all decentralized networks. So those are just a couple examples. All of this sounds very, how can I say, I think for people in the U.S., this sounds really hopeless because I think the implicit attitude of most people who are U.S.-based is that kind of everything lives or dies, based on, you know, what the U.S. attitude is, and that if the U.S. closes off something like crypto through these, let's say, broker-dealer regulations or through excessive, you know, these excessive measures applied to Tornado Cash, that, like, what are you really going to do? And a common sentiment I see is, like, you know, okay, where, you know, where are you going to go? And it's usually asked rhetorically, like, of course there isn't an answer. You can't go anywhere. And so before we get into El Salvador, I actually want to ask you about the concept of non-U.S. jurisdictions generally, leaving aside specific ones. If you're a project or who wants to, like, let's say, issue a token or you're a developer who wants to work on, you know, crypto technology that would leave you classified as a broker dealer under the new U.S. regs, again, leaving aside specific countries, what benefits can you get by going offshore and what types of jurisdictions do you need to be in for that to be useful to you? Okay, this has been a continuing central part of my legal practice for the past five and a half years, actually. And it's been a constantly shifting picture. Uh, a lot of people probably remember back in 2017, uh, even before 2017, Switzerland was a favorable jurisdiction that led to the uh, development of Crypto Valley in Zug, Switzerland, and the Zug Canton. Uh, other, other British Commonwealth jurisdictions were very popular. A lot of um, projects, ICO projects in 2017 went down to the Cayman Islands, uh, set up uh, uh, corporations there, uh, and, and, and sent some of their uh, developers and staff there for periods of, you know, a few weeks at a time so that they'd actually have some physical presence uh, in, in Cayman. Uh, British Virgin Islands, uh, after that it became, you know, Gibraltar, Singapore was big. Um, Malta, you've probably heard all these jurisdictions, Cyprus, uh, Liechtenstein. Uh, but about a year ago, I was starting to see that there were unfavorable trends that had already ruled out many of those as good jurisdictions and had impaired others because they were... Um, uh, I, I, well, I'm not sure what was driving it. I'm not going to speculate. All I will say was the result was that it was, it was becoming more and more difficult, even in the best jurisdictions, and more and more risky to uh, do a token offering. So, for instance, Singapore. Singapore can work, let's say, for a big established financial company. I've seen one get registered there in the last few months. But for a typical Web3 startup project, uh, doesn't work. And, and, and the biggest hang-up is you have to have uh, one of your three directors be a Singapore citizen. And it got to the point where Singapore citizens uh, couldn't be found to be directors for token-issuing companies. Uh, Dubai. Uh, Dubai is another example. Uh, but uh, Dubai, again, can be good for a, for a large, well-established, very well-financed um, company, they're going to have to inter interact with the financial and securities regulators, just as they do in Singapore. Uh, so as a result, 
a year ago, uh, after Bitcoin had become legal tender in El Salvador, the very next month, I just started looking into that to see, well, could they possibly be receptive to crypto more generally, blockchain-based companies, decentralized companies? So uh, I've, I've been looking into that for the past uh, year. I want to, before we get into El Salvador, one thing I was trying to elicit in my question, and those are great uh, overviews of the various jurisdiction options, is just for, you know, <laughs> to make things sort of really clear for our listeners, if you can find a jurisdiction that provides regulation of what it means to issue a token, it sounds like that's really desirable. Can you explain to people why it's important to have a, such a jurisdiction? Because I think the intuition that a lot of our even sophisticated U.S. listeners would have is that, all right, you know, you get you issue a token in Dubai or something, uh, but then it's, you know, it's there, it's out in the wild and the U.S. is mad at you. Uh, how does that even help you to have issued it in Dubai if they're, if they're mad at you anyway? Isn't the U.S. just going to do whatever it wants? Okay, so here's what you need. Uh, several things. It's a really good um, s uh, specific part of, the, uh, of your question. Number one, it's very helpful to have a regulatory framework in the country that is open to blockchain-based uh, decentralized uh, Web3-type projects, open to crypto. Uh, that's why I was wondering if El Salvador was open to more than Bitcoin for crypto. And it, it, it helps if it's a country that actually wants to develop a Web3-oriented sector of their economy. Because it's one thing to have laws that are favorable, and, and very few... Of the jurisdictions I mentioned in the past, let's say 2017, most of them didn't have a legal framework. So let's take uh, Cayman for an example. They just didn't have a regulatory framework. The danger of that is, is twofold. One is they're likely to develop one, especially under pressure from FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, the international body that uh, drives anti-money laundering policy in various countries. Uh, and sure enough, FATF has had a huge impact on Cayman by putting them on the gray list. Uh, and the, the other thing is there were very light regulation jurisdictions like the Seychelles, you know, little island chain in the Indian Ocean, like Belize, little country in Central America. And it was really easy and cheap to set up there. But the problem was it didn't provide you any protection and, and, and it didn't give you credibility so we'll get into this about El Salvador, but what's been needed is a country that sets a, a, a clear, intelligently designed regulatory framework, and especially one that doesn't treat all tokens as securities, okay? Um, and, 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 and secondly, yeah. it's got to be a country that is willing to stand up for its own sovereignty, because you said, well, can't the U.S. do whatever it wants? Well, it can as long as it's, you know, a vassal country that doesn't care about their sovereignty. You, you need a country that's ready to set up their own legal structure, say, we stand by this. We're a sovereign country, just like the U.S., so U.S. will talk to you, but uh, you're going to have to convince us. We're not going to do it just because you tell us to. And to summarize your answer, this would be... You would, in order to benefit from such protection and from the country being willing to stand up, would it be necessary to live there or in a country that was like broadly aligned with them in order to get the benefit of that? You know, sticking up for your rights as someone who you know, say, like issued a token there. 
Well, uh, you're getting me right to El Salvador because the uh, fact is in the <laughs> 33 pages of this new law, there's absolutely no requirement that you become a resident of El Salvador, that you operate from there. You're going to have to pay some taxes there. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the other key factor, and we can get into this in more detail, is it's very beneficial if you can set up your your corporation in a favorable jurisdiction in a way so that it is not regarded under U.S. law as a U.S.-controlled foreign corporation. And that'll happen. You'll be, you'll be a, a U.S.-controlled foreign corporation if a majority of your board of directors are U.S. citizens, if the majority of your shareholder of your shareholdings are by U.S. citizens. We, we, we can talk about that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think we've covered some key factors. Totally. Yeah. And I think um, as we get into El Salvador, before, before we get into the details of the law themselves, keeping a nice, you know, some tension for the listener um, to, to keep them going. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the story of this law and how it's moved into, you know, it was recently introduced uh, to, to Congress by the president, because I, my understanding is that you have a bit of a personal hand in um, introducing some of these concepts and maybe even drafting some of what the law uh, would look like. So you, you've seen the whole process. Uh, I, I've seen it. Um, I've seen parts of it. I, uh, okay, so here's, here's the history of my own history. Uh, first contact with uh, 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 Salvadoran government was January with their embassy in Washington. Extremely receptive, really good people, very encouraging. We're the land of economic freedom. We want to work with you. We want to attract investment to El Salvador. Uh, that led to uh, a, a trip in March uh, where I met with high-ranking officials uh, who are very much involved in bringing tech business to El Salvador who are involved uh, in blockchain type, Bitcoin. Uh, and uh, I started uh, slowly a, a trickle of companies to onboard to El Salvador. The... Um, the Salvadoran Council I was working with, starting in midsummer, we together drafted a four-page proposed law uh, that would be a framework for DAOs to register and operate in and from El Salvador. Modeled, modeled somewhat on the Wyoming DAO law, but also tied in um, completely to El Salvador commercial law, which my co-counsel is intimately familiar with. Uh, that led also to um, meetings, um, both, um, uh, you know, Zoom meetings um, uh, later in the summer with top-level lawyers in the government, um, uh, meetings the next month with high-level uh, uh, people at the government. And it was very clear that they were, first of all, extremely well-informed. Number two, very interested in developing a tech sector, becoming uh, something of a tech hub. Mm. Uh, that they were um, not all complete Bitcoin maximalists. That they were totally capable of recognizing that while Bitcoin may be the number one uh, candidate for a currency, and certainly is, it is a currency in El Salvador, it's legal tender. But nevertheless, uh, other yep. blockchains like Ethereum can can be outstanding uh, value as uh, platforms for building new tech. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I didn't know what would come out of the process. They did a very good job of maintaining uh, confidentiality, developing things, you know, without a whole lot of publicity. 
And then when they announced it, it came out on Tuesday night, and uh, I had enough Spanish, fortunately, to read through it and say, oh, my gosh, this thing is incredibly well-written. This is a dream come true. I can't believe they, they've, they've, they've gone beyond our Dow law. It applies to all digital assets. They've, um, I, I can see some of our discussion you know, reflected in what they did. But no, these are guys who draft the law their way for their country. Uh, the lawyers I dealt with are really first class. They're really sharp people. And, um, yeah, what they have produced is uh, quite an amazing opportunity for Web3. That's awesome. Um, one thing that really sticks out in your story is just how quickly this has moved. I mean, you said that this, these discussions started not even a year ago. And I think that really speaks to what you said is necessary for a, a country to create a good environment for Web3 companies is not only like a clear regulatory environment, but enthusiasm on the part of the government and the culture to uh, create a home for these technologies. And it seems like in your dealings, it's not only like, it's really intelligent people and really enthusiastic people who are working hard to get the job done, which is, which is exactly what you need. Yeah, and they've got very important leadership, because i got to tell you, all those jurisdictions I mentioned before, from Belize and Cayman to the Seychelles to Singapore, there's never been one of those uh, top 10 crypto or blockchain or token jurisdictions that had a head of government who was personally enthusiastic about crypto. And that's what El Salvador has in, in Najib Bukele. And he's obviously, you know, very committed to, um, uh, you know, Bitcoin uh, as legal tender. He's been under uh, and all sorts of pressure from uh, the IMF, global financial community, U.S. government to back down. He just says, hey, we're a sovereign country. I'm doing what's best for my people. Um, and, and frankly, he is. There's no question in my mind. If he followed the advice, it, it would hurt his people. Mm. What he's doing is helping them immensely. Their economy is is not just growing, it's booming. Tourism is booming. And so all of these people I've dealt with, uh, I can't say that I've met El Presidente, but I've met a lot of people who are right around him and work with him. Um, they're just, they're pulling all oars in the same direction. They all get the message. They're all with him. Uh, it's a very harmonious um, effort. And so this law has to be passed by the legislature. So will that happen? Will it get filibustered? Will it get slowed down? No. He has a new political party, which he only formed, what, three or four years ago, and they have two-thirds of the seats in the legislature. So it's going to pass within a couple mm, weeks. So supermajority. Yep. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. And so I'm just curious, like, you mentioned, you know, you were concerned that they were going to be Bitcoin maxis. Like, what exactly, what are covered by this, what is covered by this digital asset law? Is it, are we talking stable coins, um, DeFi? Is it like every single part of crypto? Like, is it broadly just legalizing pretty much all aspects of crypto that we currently know? Is that correct? Yes, the definition of digital assets in the law and all the provisions that apply to them they apply to DAOs, DeFi, NFTs, ICOs, stablecoins, um, you name it. There is a section, a separate section, setting up a commission for the administration of Bitcoin proceeds when there are public sales, as in a Bitcoin bond offering, uh, of Bitcoin. That's about one-tenth of, um, of the 33 pages. And 
all of the 33 pages, all the rest uh, applies to uh, digital assets in general. Yeah, it's, that's fantastic. Um, really, really good to see. And I'm curious, like you mentioned an issue with Singapore and Dubai was that basically the it was there was too much burden, too much of a barrier for most Web3 companies to be able to benefit. Like what's the regulatory burden like with this law? Is it easy? Will, I don't know, say a company with just like a million in market cap, will it be accessible? These This great regulatory environment will be accessible to them? Or is it still like a pretty big cutoff um, for the size required to really get the benefit of this law? Okay, it's going to be a big contrast to Singapore and very big contrast to Dubai. So the cost of setting up, first of all, a Salvadoran corporation, which you need to do to benefit from this law if you're not a Salvadoran citizen individual. Uh, By the way, any citizen can set up, Mm. anyone of any nationality can set up a Salvadoran corporation. You know, you can do that for a couple thousand dollars. Uh, the, there's a fee schedule for digital asset issuers. Uh, the current rate is 5400 to register and an annual uh, re-registration fee of 3600 uh, It's pegged to the minimum wage. So that's a very clever way of making sure that as there's inflation, the uh, fees go up. Uh, I've never seen that sort of uh, mechanism used in the U.S. or anywhere else. Uh, That's what I mean. We're talking about smart and creative people uh, who are doing this. And then there's a a fee of a percentage of proceeds of an asset, digital asset sale. But that that fee is one one hundredth of one percent. So let's say you do a $10 million token offering. 1% 1% of that would be, let's do the math, $100,000, right? But one hundredth of 1% is $1,000. So, hey, you know, if you're fortunate enough to do a token uh, sale that raises $10 million, you, know, you pay $1,000 extra. One thing I want to clarify there, though, is a lot of projects now will release a token and just let it float. Like the ICO model isn't used as much now. So what happens if you just release a token that doesn't where you're not necessarily raising money? You're just letting it, you know, letting it float out there and maybe the project like sells some of it over time. Yeah, uh, there's actually a provision in the law about stable coins that somewhat addresses that type of scenario. It's where you don't know what the volume is going to be or you don't know what your revenue mm-hmm. from it is going to be. And so you just use a look back procedure where, you know, they they go a year out and, and, and look back and, and, mm. and top up. But also, they're going to they have a commission. Okay. They're, they, they're setting up a national commission of digital assets. It's headed up by three commissioners. And they're going to be obviously working through, you know, any of the issues here. I'll tell you one of the amazing things in El Salvador is you can get in and talk to the decision makers. Okay, that's why it's gone so fast. I'm not the only one who's been able to do this. Um, You've got people who aren't scared to talk to you and who uh, will deal with you on the merits, who understand the issues. Uh, You don't need to brief them up. Uh, I was in one meeting where I thought I'd have to do a sales pitch for uh, half an hour, and the guy I'm talking to after a minute says, well, hold on, you know, I've read this, and this is a really good idea. Uh, Let's go ahead and do it. Okay, I've never been in a meeting with any government official like that in my life. Yeah, it's wild. And I've had a similar experience um, interacting with the El Salvadorian government at a little bit lower levels, I think, than you. But yeah, overall, super positive. I was also very surprised at just like the efficiency of the bureaucracy, where I was able to, for example, get a tax ID. It took about five minutes. Um, I've done tax IDs in Ukraine and 
uh, looked into it in Mexico and Argentina, other countries, and it's just usually a pain. Usually the bureaucracy is quite slow. So yeah, I've been quite impressed. Um, I guess let, let's kind of dive in a little bit to like, what's the timeline like? You've mentioned you've set up some corporations in El Salvador already for clients. Um, like how long does that take? Um, should they get started now? Like is, you mentioned this is pretty much a done deal. There's a supermajority in Congress. Should people, what are, what are some, kind of some next steps for folks? Yeah, it makes sense to set up a corporation early because then you're going to want to use that corporation to be the applicant with the National Commission of Digital Assets to get authorization to um, issue uh, your tokens. So yeah, it, it makes sense to get started early. Uh, a corporation can be set up uh, within a week or two, uh, provided that you have uh, at least two Salvadoran shareholders. They don't have to own a lot of shares, but they have to own at least one share uh, because you need um, you need two individuals to sign what they translate as the deed. We'd probably call it the Articles of Incorporation. And um, they have to sign uh, in front of a Salvadoran notary. So uh, for instance, I'm, I'm right in the middle right now of uh, forming a corporation down there. And um, I've got two Salvadorans that I got to know, you know, during my travels. Uh, super people, incredibly uh, uh, trustworthy, diligent, uh, dependable. And uh, so they're going to be the, um, you know, small shareholders. They're going to do the signing. Everything's going to go uh, very fast and smooth. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Is, is there anything else, like, that's missing from this law? Like you mentioned, it's fantastic law. It seems to legalize um, pretty much all aspects of crypto. Is there anything that you'd want El Salvador to pass next? Or is this kind of it? Is this the perfect crypto law? Well, okay, I'm going to try to think of that while I tell you what I'm glad is in the law, okay? Um, first of all, yeah. uh, right up front, in it's Article 3, Paragraph 2, okay? I think it might be in like the third or fourth page. It says, I wrote this one down because I love it so much. Digital assets are not considered titulos valores. Well, what's a titulo valore? Titulos valores are securities. So in English, it means mm. digital assets are not considered securities. <laughs> okay? And I'll, I'll continue a little bit because it's so fun to hear it. And therefore, the regulations referring to securities are not applicable in any respect as to the commercial code, nor the law of securities markets, nor the law of electronic securities, nor the law of electronic annotations of security accounts, nor the law of investments, okay? Man, I'd love to shake the hand of whoever drafted that. Let me dive into that for, for our listeners who don't appreciate the implications there, because, and I think the ones who are heavily into crypto, both as you know, founders, builders, and um, whatever, participants would know it, but for the last however many years, there's been this whole dance that everyone's had to do where it's not at all obvious that like being a security or having security-like properties should be this horrible thing, right? Like there, there's a lot of, and there's a lot of people who have recognized that, you know, crypto tokens in some cases have aspects of securities and it's attractive to users when they do. They also have these non-security type aspects. But there's been this whole dance where no one can, you know, even utter the word security or just being anything like that is a dirty word. And what I'm curious about is, one, do you observe that as a big constraint when you're talking to projects when, where you have to advise them to take out features that otherwise would be really beneficial for their users uh, because of that? And also, if a client is willing to, you know, 
incorporate in El Salvador, an issue there. Would you then tell your client that they kind of, you know, don't have to worry about that as much? Or is there, you know, things here I'm missing? Several parts to answer your question. First of all, we've had enough experience now in the U.S. to see that it makes utterly no sense and is of utterly no benefit to treat tokens as securities. And what do I mean by that? Okay, so when the SEC treats one after another a, a, a token uh, issued tokens as securities and enforcement actions, and people started looking at that starting in late 2017, I had various clients uh, coming to me and prospective clients like saying, hey, hey, Steve, so the SEC says it's a security. So can we go through like the Reg A plus process, you know, to um, register mm. our security and offer it? What, what is Reg A plus? Uh, uh, okay, so you, you've got uh, Reg S for uh, the traditional IPO, like the one I did, Genuity, mm. $1.9 billion raised. But what if you only, only want to raise like under $50 million? Then you use Reg A. Reg A plus is simply a modification of it uh, through a, an amendment in Congress. It was designed to make it easier for small and medium-sized businesses to go public and to raise, you know, raise money in the capital markets. And, and so in, um, in, in mid-2019, the SEC actually greenlighted two token sales under Reg A, okay, as registered uh, approved securities, okay? And a lot of people thought that would start a trend. I hoped it would start a trend. But in fact, what happened was that was just a head fake by the SEC. They haven't greenlit any other token offering as a security that I know. And what happened with the two that they did greenlight, because of various restrictions they put on the companies during the approval process, both, both of the issuances were a flop, okay? So you have this absurd situation where you have a government that's saying a certain type of commodity is a security, but then the government has no successful way to treat them as securities in a productive, economically beneficial, capital-raising manner, okay? So it's, it, it, it's, it's actually a ridiculous situation. We've come to accept it so much. I, I think we don't even, I, I don't even tend to think day-to-day -day how ridiculous it is, but I will tell you this. This is what I was trying to get at, this, this, bizarre, this bizarre acceptance where everyone seems to have just fully internalized that security must be bad. Like Bitcoin maxis will throw it at crypto as like, these things are securities and people will go to great lengths to not be securities. And no one's ever seems like has stopped to ask, okay, well, a security is just a thing where, you know, it's this very common capital formation pattern where you want to buy in in some way. Maybe, you know, the profits will solely come from the efforts of others. Maybe you'll do stuff. But like at the end of the day, like it's this very desirable structure. And it seems like the U.S. is going to incredible lengths to stamp out this really productive form of, you know, capital formation. And El Salvador is just sidesteps it and is just like, okay, you know, this seems like pretty good. Let's have this. Let's have this happen. That sounds great. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I did spend the first few years in this field advising clients of what, you know, features to change in their, in their plan, in their token, etc., so as to have a good argument under the Supreme Court version of the Howey test, okay, whether or not the SEC agreed. Um, mm. But and, and I'll tell you, there, there are lawyers and, and, and lobbyists who are working very hard to try to talk some sort of sense to the SEC and the Biden administration, but 
I got to tell you, I, I, I've started telling them a few months ago, I, I wish you all the best because, you know, I know some of these folks. I do wish them the best. But as I told them, I'm devoting my efforts to um, finding and developing a favorable jurisdiction in case your efforts fail. And I got to say, after the FTX collapse, those efforts have failed. There is no prospect after FTX of talking the U.S. Congress, the SEC, the CFTC, the Treasury Department, or White House staff, you know, under Joe Biden, into any sort of sense about the topics we're talking about. The only thing that's worth spending any time on, as far as I'm concerned, is looking for good jurisdictions, uh, sovereign countries that want to develop their economy, and, and also that set a framework which is really responsible. There are a lot of aspects of this uh, law that I'd also like to talk about because it's really well drafted. Before, before we get there, I want to ask something because I think people, it's a little bit of a spicy topic, but do you see evidence that you know, some of these uh, U.S. crypto lawyers will encourage their clients in unproductive directions to do stuff to stay onshore in the U.S. and take on more risk because those lawyers don't have the ability to provide services somewhere like El Salvador? Do you think there's a risk of uh, the projects are facing that they have to be sophisticated about? Well, I'd certainly hope that sort of thing wouldn't happen, but you always have to take into account economic incentives when you're dealing with anybody in an economic endeavor. And let's face it, the mm -hmm. whole range of U.S. you know crypto lawyers and, and the whole lobbying apparatus that's developed in Washington and has grown a whole lot since the infrastructure bill and the unsuccessful lobbying effort. Um, mm. I, I mean, you're, what I'm saying basically says, you know, <laughs> like you'd be smart to find another job uh, or maybe you're still going to get money, but you're not going to accomplish anything useful for anybody. Um, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so have you seen projects generally be receptive to the idea of offshoring some of their operations uh, in the face of these challenges, or do you see a still like a lot of resistance to doing that and like an idea that the U.S. will end up being okay? Two parts of that answer. First of all, in the last half year, I have talked to many, uh, both um, founders uh, of Web3 projects and investors, you know, from funds that invest in Web3 projects. And consistently, it takes about 10 to 15 minutes to convince them that they should look at a foreign jurisdiction, okay? Um, but, but I also <laughs> yeah, have to say, most of them see. haven't been thinking that way to start. And, and, and you know, mm. a lot of this stuff doesn't get a lot of publicity. You know, the people you follow on Twitter who really are into these things and have the time, you know, and can afford to spend their time talking about all this tend to be people, you know, who are U.S. related either to U.S. law firms or U.S. lobbying organizations. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. What if, let's say, so a company does set up in El Salvador, let's say it follows the rules to make it so it's not a U.S. controlled corporation, but then the U.S. for whatever reason decides to challenge that, you know, what would that actually look like if the U.S. challenged it? Would it be, you know, like, would El Salvador have to give over data, for example, on that project to the U.S.? Like, how would that actually play out? Okay, sure. Let's take some examples. Let's take Tornado Cash, okay? Should I talk about mm. Tornado Cash as an example? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really Please. important project. Let's say that let's say that 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 poor schmuck you know is imprisoned in uh, Amsterdam now under a complete like lawless system of some sort, 
uh, Kafkaesque. Let's say that he had been in El Salvador, okay? Let's say he developed, he did some development work for, you know, Tornado Cash, or maybe Tornado Cash even had, you know, a, a, a support center, the few devs and, you know, what, whatever system, admin, whatever, um, working in El Salvador. So the U.S. comes in and says, hey, uh, they're violating our sanctions. Well, the first thing El Salvador is going to say is, we're really concerned about sanctions enforcement. We want to be really responsible international citizens. Uh, are you talking United Nations sanctions? Oh, no, no, we're talking U.S. sanctions. Well, then get lost. We enforce U.N. sanctions, and you can enforce U.S. sanctions, but we're not U.S. In other words, El Salvador has made it super clear. Their president says this. Their ambassador in uh, Washington, D.C., God bless her, Milena Mayorga, incredibly impressive representative of her country, constantly telling U.S. State Department and others in the Biden administration, we're not your backyard, we're a sovereign country, we want to have good relations with you as long as you respect our sovereignty, okay? So to clarify, um, you know, even, well, we could use the Tornado Cash example, but to get these benefits of protection, um, the project founders or developers in question uh, would need to be living in El Salvador because otherwise, you know, El Salvador can stand up for them all they want. But if they're in, you know, the U.S. or Europe, any of this stuff could happen. Well, that's that's true. Uh, I mean, when you get to a certain point, I mean, with all my clients, you know, I deal with uh, risk assessment, risk mitigation. Uh, that's not to say that you got to start spending all your your life in El Salvador, although it's become an incredible place. I think we had to talk about that. Uh, it's just gone uh, this year from being one of the most dangerous high crime places in the world to it actually by this summer had the lowest per capita homicide rate in all of Latin America. And by September and October, it was lower than Canada. So it now has the lowest per capita homicide rate in the Western Hemisphere and also a very low rate wow. of, of all types of crime from petty theft and burglary up to homicide. And uh, that's all because they, uh, they made it a crime to be a gang member and they started arresting their gang members. I mean, it's easy to know who's a gang member. You, you get some propaganda in the U.S. press. Oh, there's mass arrests in El Salvador. It's horrible. And then who are they mass arresting? Everybody who's got uh, tattoos that say like MS-13 on their chest or Barrio 18. Th these are two of the most, you know, brutal uh, organizations in the world. You don't belong to them unless you've uh, at least done a lot of, uh, 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 you know, enforcement you know, uh, uh, protection money and, and extortion, uh, and in many cases, uh, murder. Um, and, and it turns out the gangs have developed yeah, basically a monopoly on crime. So now there's not any crime left. Every, uh, I know people in the capital now, some folks who have worked with us as partners, you know, some young folks in their 20s. They've got friends who are from the slums. You know, they play soccer together, pick up games and so forth. The people from the poorest regions of El Salvador who were the most oppressed by the gangs are universally saying, oh, my gosh, we've never experienced freedom like this before. There's nobody, you know, to, to check who goes in and, and out of the uh, favela. There's nobody to make sure if we have any job that we pay them a percentage. There's nobody to check on whether we've started our own business and make sure that, you know, we pay protection money. All of this is gone. There is total freedom. It is a complete... Uh, complete change. Yeah, that's been our lived experience as well, bringing about 30 herbiters down to El Salvador. You know, no one's had any issues with crime whatsoever. Um, I was actually just chatting during the Bitcoin conference with 
um, an entrepreneur from El Salvador. He runs a video game company there. And he mentioned a lot of his workers who are coming from poor areas used to have to pay, you know, exit fees and entry fees back into where they live because the gangs controlled the neighborhoods. And yeah, he was just like saying like, you know, it didn't change his life, but it changed all of his workers' lives, people who are living in these more disenfranchised areas. Um, so yeah, it's quite fascinating on that perspective. It's also just been, you know, really good for overall tourism, you know, great weather. So yeah, definitely a good place to check out. I am though curious, like just to dive into like how much time you think people would have to spend in El Salvador and, and would it be burdensome for the U.S. to try to discover, for example, like how much time you are spending in El Salvador versus other countries? Like how would they really prove, for example, that it's not, you know, fully operated out of El Salvador? Well, they'd have a hard time proving it. What you really want to do is you, you want to have enough Salvadoran presence, okay, so that you know, if uh, some federal investigator comes knocking on the door, uh, you, you, you can explain, well, hold on, you know, we're, not, we're a Salvadoran company, we've got such and such going on in El Salvador. It, it's not a question of whether the founder's living there, it's not a question of whether the devs are working from there, but uh, two main things to do. One is, if you can set it up so you're not a U.S.-controlled corporation, that's number one. Uh, number two is to have some presence there. Hire a couple, you know, part-time people there to do your social media or community development work. Uh, if you find a, you know, a Salvadoran dev or a Salvadoran administrative assistant. And if your devs are all working from elsewhere, you know, you might do a conference in El Salvador. You might, you know, send uh, one or two or three of them, you know, there for this week or that week or a few weeks or a month, whatever. Uh, give them a family vacation there, you know, wh wh whatever. But enough so that you are in a position where the U.S. government can't claim, oh, this is just a sham. You're really a U.S. company. You know, you set up a corporation in El Salvador, but hey, your shareholders, uh, shareholdings are majority U.S. citizens. Your you know, board of directors is majority U.S. You've got all your dev staff, you know, sitting in uh, Austin, Texas, you know, whatever it is. Mm, yeah, really interesting. Now, is El Salvador making it fairly straightforward for people who want to move there to, like, acquire residency? Yeah, so with um, corporation that I'm setting up there for a Web3 project, uh, one of them is already pretty far along in the process for getting a residency visa. Uh, what it is, is if you're a shareholder in a Salvadoran corporation and you're involved in any way in building the value of that corporation, then you are eligible for a resident visa. And, hey, El Salvador is close enough to the U.S. Even if you don't have a resident visa, you can go down there for up to 90 days. Uh, you know, once you hit 90 days, what do you do? You can drive across the Honduras border and back, and then you get another 90 days. So, you know, it's the, the, the immigration aspect is not uh, a, a barrier. And for anybody who's really involved in a Web3 project that locates in El Salvador, you know, like, like one of them, uh, I, I've got, you know, they've got some foreign nationals who would much rather live in El Salvador than in the country they're in currently. And um, they're both shareholders and, uh, you know, uh, they're entitled to visas. Yeah, I've had some experience with that, too, and also just hanging out with people in El Salvador. Um, pretty much all the Bitcoiners I know who have wanted residency, they've gotten it. Um, it takes only about a month um, now that we if you have a good lawyer, it takes about a month. Um, the requirement is basically a police report from your home country. It only costs like a, actually a pretty shockingly low amount. I think it's about 600 total for two years. Um, so it's actually kind of approaching the ease of a really good program like Mexico. So it's like a little bit harder, but pretty comparable in terms of cost um, and overall characteristics. 
Yeah, it's really good to know. And we can probably get into soon, like the practicalities of people in the U.S. moving on this or what they should wait for. Uh, just just to finish this one, though, before we get to that, uh, Stephen, are there any other jurisdictions that you see on the horizon that might be looking to this and being ready to copy or have been, you know, waiting for some proof of concept or what such a law might look like? I've been surprised how slow other jurisdictions are to copy El Salvador's successes of the past year or two. Uh, so, for instance, Bitcoin, I think they, okay, so El Salvador established Bitcoin as legal tender side by side with the dollar. So who has followed suit? I think the Central African Republic, am I right? Something like that, yeah. As to a regulatory framework for web, yeah, a, a regulatory framework for web three, is another country ready to do it? I got to tell you, when I say this law is really well drafted, I'm not kidding you. When I tell you the people I've met with high up in the government are really sharp, extremely well informed, I don't know if there's another country in the world that has that sort of, like, (laughs) confidence and enthusiasm and commitment to do this in any reasonable period of time. I mean... You know, if, if, if suddenly hearts and minds were changed in Washington, D.C., how quick could the U.S. government come up with a structure as good as this? In my experience, it would probably take them a couple years if you're lucky. Well, it sounds like something that's interesting is it's, you know, this really doesn't happen on accident. It's not like El Salvador just tripped into uh, being a Web3 crypto-friendly country, and it takes more than just a couple people or a couple centers to get this done. There really has to be enlightenment and enthusiasm, which I think is really one of the most exciting things about that because it makes this feel sustainable, right? And that this is part of a long-term vision for El Salvador's future. This isn't something that's just going to shift um, at, the, at the next election. It feels like they're really building an infrastructure here. Yeah, that's a really important point, Mitchell. I'll just expand on that a little bit. It, it, it really is central to understanding the context there to know just a little bit about Nayib Bukele. So he formed a new political party around the time he was running for president. Until then, El Salvador had a two-party system just like the U.S. You had a corrupt left-wing party. You had a corrupt right-wing party, just as in the U.S. you have a you know, left-wing party dominated by money, and you have a right-wing party dominated by other money, except there's a big overlap in the money with, uh, you know, people donating to both to keep their influence up in Washington. And what Bukele did, he started a new party called Nuevas Ideas, Spanish for New Ideas. That party now has two-thirds of the legislature. They are mopping up even the local municipality and mayor elections uh, across uh, the country, because people are just sick of two corrupt parties. Um, And Uh, So what he's done in crime reduction, that took him a few years to lay the groundwork for doing that. And what he's done with this digital assets law, that took time to lay the groundwork for it, to get the experience, you know, of using uh, a digital currency as as, uh, uh, legal tender Um, and and also to understand. So, you know, what do we want to do about other types of uh, cryptos, you know, do we just want to hear people calling them shit coins, or do you want to look at which ones are actually valuable? Uh, and and then the type of law that was passed, it's got some very good provisions, you know, requiring token issuing companies to uh, disclose, you know, what their what what their business plan is, to communicate um, openly and accurately with their um, uh, token recipients. Um, 
it, it, this was not like done in a way of pushover, like, oh yeah, let's just quick build up a, you know, a, a token-based economy and just let any, anything in here. Um, yeah, they're running a tight ship. And, and one question, just well, one point of clarification. So Bukele, he's like ninety percent popular. He's running for re-election now. That's right. Um, so it sounds like there's at least another four or five years of Bukele. So you at least get that amount of time, which honestly is kind of like eternity in crypto. So is that is that kind of how you're looking at it? It's like <laughs> the stability for you know at least at least this next term of Bukele coming up. So until what what is that like? I think it's four or five years out now. Yeah. Yeah, it's five years out. You can you can bet on that with with you know almost zero risk. But what's more than that is it, it's not just Bukele; it's his political party. Uh, I mean, his his ambassador in D.C. is just as committed to crypto as he is. Uh, the people around him are just as committed to crypto as he is. The the leaders of his political mm. party. Um, so it's it's not just him personally, but uh, I, I will tell you that. I mean, he comes from a business background. His dad started several uh, highly successful businesses. He and his three brothers got involved in those businesses. His brothers still run them. Um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, people really hope that Trump would be able to run the government as a really effective business. Well, you look at Nayib Bukele, you see somebody who can actually do that. Uh-huh. And I mean, this has all been uh, totally fascinating. I think we're we're nearing the point of wrapping up, and we'll give people some some more information about um, how they can like contact you and what steps to take if they're interested in um, moving forward with some crypto project in El Salvador. But I, I wanted to ask you one question that's just been on my mind for a little bit, um, which is which is unrelated to El Salvador, which is, you know, with the FTX and SBF stuff that's going on, you know, super hot button issue that I'm curious if you have any thoughts about what sorts of consequences that um, he might be facing um, and whether or not his, you know, the fact that he was incorporated in the Bahamas matters. Um, obviously, you know, we don't want more uh, SPFs. We don't want more FTX collapses. But I am curious as to the legal situation there and maybe what the interplay is between international governments. Okay, so the legal situation looked at rationally is very simple, straightforward. It's a massive multi-billion dollar fraud, <laughs> okay, with um, horrendous consequences <laughs> for the U.S. economy and all sorts of people, okay? So, but then you say, what consequences will there be for him? Well, I mean, it's been extremely weird and striking to see the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal treating him with kid gloves, even the New York Times doing a puff piece on him, after all of this was exposed. And uh, unfortunately, it has a lot of similarity in that regard to two things. Uh, one is Jeffrey Epstein, who, when he was first arrested in 2016, had such powerful backing that he hardly anything happened to him. And uh, the 2008, you know, Great Recession, where uh, the, the big banks that had set up, you know, in many cases, totally fraudulent um, uh, multi-billion dollar ventures that, that victimized enormous numbers of people globally, worldwide, uh, and suffered no consequence. So the question is uh, about, you know, SBF. Uh, the question in my mind is, so... Uh, how did he get on the same platform with Bill Clinton and Tony Blair? Uh, who are these people who are backing him? And will we ever find out? Uh, is, is he just a front man for more powerful interests the way that Jeffrey Epstein was? Um, 
I, I have no idea. Will people be scared to, um, you know, actually treat him as he deserves under the law because he might spill the beans on those more powerful people? Who knows? Mm. Yeah, that's super interesting. And we'll, we'll see. We'll see whether we we get the answers to to any of those questions going forward. Maybe not. Maybe these things will remain for forever a mystery. Um, so I think you know, just to to wrap up as we move towards the end of the episode, I think we wanted to ask you, Stephen, whether you had any sort of real, simple, direct, practical advice for people interested in the, the Web3 movement in El Salvador or starting a company there? Like, what are some steps to take? What should they look into? Um, yeah, all of that. I'll tell, I'll say what I've said to clients. I guess lawyers always say this is not legal advice. And, you know. Yeah, we'll, we'll put that in the, <laughs> the show notes. This is, this is all speculation, not legal advice. <laughs> but what I tell people is, if you have any intention of issuing a token from the U.S. or your project is largely based in the U.S., you you would be insane not to look at alternative jurisdictions at this point. Number two is, if you're looking at uh, alternate jurisdictions, if you're not just keeping your head in the sand hoping that, you know, the SEC doesn't, you know, tap you on the backside, uh, then uh, El Salvador is obviously a place to check out and... uh, Go ahead and contact the the embassy, and then go ahead and contact uh, people in El Salvador, um, and check it out for yourself. Mm. And can they also get in touch with you? Like, what's what's some contact sure. information for you if they want to learn more about, say, setting up a corporation or working with or funding, for example, El Salvadorian council to set up a company there? Uh, sure. The best way to contact me is email. I'm Steve at GaleBachLaw.com. Gail Buck, easiest way to remember the well, spelling. We'll make sure to... You got it. Okay. Well, well, uh, we'll throw it in the show notes as well to uh, to make sure that everyone can can get a hold of you if they're interested in those questions. Okay, sounds good, Mitchell. Well, uh, this has been uh, an amazing conversation. It was so good to to have you on the show. I like for me, this is one of the most interesting episodes we've done because you just have such a wealth of experience about such a technical topic. And I think it's really cool that you have brought us some um, cause for real optimism and enthusiasm (laughs) in otherwise what has perhaps been a a real crypto winter. It seems like there's some interesting, exciting stuff going on to to keep us moving forward. And it's just been a, a pleasure to hear about it from you. Hey, you know what my local council in San Salvador said? Tell us. He said it's a week ago. No, just a few days ago, in, El, in the El Salvador government, the FTX collapse has had zero impact on their plans. Mm. And then two days later or three days later, what comes out? The El Salvador digital assets law. So there you have it. Amazing. Awesome. Well, that's a great place, I think, for us to, to end this. So thank you uh, for being here. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of The Network Age. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Network Age. It'll really help us to keep getting our ideas out there, getting you know great guests, and giving you what you want if you can just help us with a few things. Uh, subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, give us a good rating if you liked it. You know, Hit that five stars. 
And our Twitters are in the show notes for me, Bitchell, and Nilrun. So follow us, retweet, promote the show, and we will keep giving you that amazing Network Age content that you love. <laughs>